Yes, you are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, the opening day edition, hence take me out to the ball game. In this interview, I talked to Tim Wiles, the former director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and current director of the Gilderland Public Library. We talked a little bit about the Civil War and how the war helped spread the game and standardize the rules, but mostly we talked about baseball history, and Tim Wiles is just the man for that. From the Doubleday myth to Johnny Evers of Troy, New York, to the current state of the game and the song you're listening to right now, we have plenty more Civil War-themed podcasts to come, but on this opening day, grab some Cracker Jacks and enjoy the baseball edition of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, a special baseball edition. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. And today I am joined by Tim Wiles, who is the director of the Gilderland Public Library, which is a beautiful building that we're recording from right now, and the former director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We'll talk a little bit about the Civil War. This is a Civil War podcast, but we're going to talk about baseball history in general, uh, and Tim is the man to talk to about that. So, Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, uh, let's start first with your previous job. I'm very interested and curious about what it entailed. Director of research at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Uh, it sounds like a dream job. Uh, and I think uh, you would uh, consider it that. Um, what What is that job? What were your responsibilities? Sure. Um, the director of research um, heads up the public-facing side of the Baseball Hall of Fame library. So many people don't know that the hall has a library, but it has a library containing three million items about baseball, really in any format that has ever existed to carry information since about the time of the Civil War. So if you want, you know, newspapers from the mid-19th century, they have those. If you want eight-track tapes, they've got those. If you want, you know, video game formats, you name it. Um, And it's not just factual information, it's fiction as well. So a lot of baseball novels and poetry, big photograph collection, big oral history collection, scrapbooks, um, just uh, heaven for either a baseball fan and or a librarian, archivist type, researcher type. Um, and what I did there was to coordinate a staff of, uh, in the glory days, up to nine people. Um, and uh, when uh, budgets got a little tighter, I was down to uh, three staff members. But what we did is we answered all public and media inquiries about the game um, or about related subjects, you know, like um, softball is obviously related to baseball so we would get some questions about things like that sometimes um, and these questions came from school children they came from genealogists they came from people who kind of were trying to do genealogy because they had a ball player in their past uh, of their family major or minor uh, they came from historians they came from media members um, the you know uh, there are fun stories about people like George Will um, who, uh, you know, often would contact the Baseball Hall of Fame library. Quick digression, he once wrote in one of his political columns, hey, this situation is like baseball where the tie goes to the runner. And one of his readers called him on this and said, that is not a baseball rule, it's a custom. And so he obviously felt the need to respond, so he contacted the library 
and we searched every baseball rule book in existence, not just at the major league level. And in fact, it is not a rule and never has been. Um, so he you know, issued a little bit of an apology. So we'd work with uh, people like that. We would also work with people making movies, um, other museums doing exhibits, uh, and to a huge extent, people writing books or graduate theses, that sort of thing. Um, it was probably the most fun you could have and still be collecting a paycheck. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned the George Will story. Are there any, you know, um, things that you found out? I'm sure there are numerous things you found out uh, helping somebody with a project. Can you name one that sort of sticks out? Oh, there are so, so many. Um, you mean facts, like interesting, unusual I, You facts. know, I, of course, I never mm-hmm. knew Ty goes to, to the run. You hear it mm-hmm. from your t-ball days. Um, it's a custom. It's not a rule. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Uh, mm-hmm. Something like that. Okay. Well, you know, where my mind is going is not exactly like that, but just kind of a fun one. So as your listeners know, there was a great uh, writer of um, nonfiction, including baseball, named David Halberstam. And when people like George Will or David Halberstam would contact the library, if they got good service from whoever they reached, they would often adopt that person as kind of their personal librarian. And so one of my colleagues, a guy named Dan, became the personal librarian for David Halberstam. And for 10 or 12 years, he just, whenever uh, David Halberstam would call, he'd drop everything and research what Mr. Halberstam needed and um, get it to him. And you know, a library like that has often some fees, and in a case like this, the fees get waived, and so on and so forth. And so one day, Halberstam calls my uh, my colleague Dan, and he he asks a question, and Dan says, "Great, I'll get right on that." He says, um, "By the way, I saw you on ESPN last night," and uh, Mr. Halberstam said, "I wasn't on ESPN last night." And uh, Dan said, uh, yeah, you were. You know that, uh, that new five-part uh, documentary on the Brooklyn Dodgers that they're showing that um, Pee Wee Reese's son Mark put together? He said, uh, you were on there. You're one of the talking heads. And uh, this guy said, Dan, I'm not that David Halberstam. And so we looked him up, and it turned out he was a small-town sports columnist at a weekly newspaper in Florida named— wow. David Halberstam. Wow. Uh, (laughs) So to get back to your question, we would find stuff out all the time. One thing that pops to my mind that your listeners might enjoy, um, the Hannes Wagner baseball card is obviously the most valuable baseball card. And many of us, including those of us who uh, were in this situation, would often make the mistake of referring to it as the rarest baseball card. But there are dozens, if not more than 100, baseball cards that exist in only one or two or three physical, real cards. And uh, for the Wagner, there's uh, estimated to be somewhere between 50 and 100 of them around. And um, so, you know, telling somebody something like that um, can blow people's minds a little bit. But it's really fascinating culturally, especially, again, to listeners of this kind of a show, because it's not the straight rarity. It's the rarity combined with what, for lack of a better term, you'd call mystique. Yes. And I'm sure the Civil War has artifacts and um, sort of holy grail ideas that, that researchers are looking for that um, don't turn out to be exactly what you think they are until you become a real, real Civil War expert, which, by the way, I'm not. But... Um, uh, these, you know, and, and what the the job of 
the baseball librarian or in some other institutions, the Civil War librarian, sometimes seems like, it seems like my job is whenever anyone calls or comes in and talks about, asks about anything, I say, well, it didn't really happen exactly like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> well, and that's one of the jobs of a historian. Um, history often is myth. Yeah. And, you know, the way that we remember things and want to remember things. And that's as important as it, what actually happened in a lot of cases. But talk about a subject that is just r- 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 it's filled with all kinds of myths. It's mm-hmm. baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can start with the the where baseball was invented and who invented it. And, and, and mm-hmm. you know, going into this, uh, before we started, we talked about um, Cooperstown and uh, uh how baseball ended up there. So, Tim, if you can go into um, the myth of the invention of baseball, mm-hmm. um, it's probably the case that there were many different versions of a game, and uh, it uh, eventually became standardized. That The Civil War might have helped with that a little bit, uh, according to George Kirsch, uh, who wrote a book about it. But uh, get into the myth of the invention of baseball. Sure. Um, So usually I would start at a different point than I will start for the Civil War listeners here. Um, And I am not, uh, despite having uh, completed all the coursework for a master's in American history, um, I'm more of a 20th century uh, popular culture type person. And so some of what I'm saying may not quite work for some of you, and, and don't call me. <laughs> call me to tell me how much you like the show. But I think there's some general truth to what I'm going to say. And one of those general truths is that at the time baseball was becoming really, really popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, there was still a um, difficult relationship between the United States and England. And uh, that relationship is very, very different today. So um, for uh, the average person on the street, it might be hard to um, to really uh, recapture just how much um, anger, distrust, um, and sort of rivalry there was between the United States and, and England at the time. So baseball is becoming very, very popular in the 1870s and 1880s, and certainly by the 1890s. And Um, By 1903, I believe it was, um, there was clamor for an origin point. Um, Everybody wanted to know where baseball started, and the subtext when you read the original press clippings and documents is, it better be here in the United States because we are um, still a relatively young nation at that time, and we are very patriotic and proud of ourselves, and baseball is our unquestioned national pastime. it's the, it's the institution about which the phrase national pastime was invented. Um, and so uh, the um, leading journalists in baseball started a group called the Mills Commission, which uh, was tasked with finding where baseball began. And it being 1903, the tools they had at their disposal were very, very different than today's tools. So they basically put up uh, broadsides and handbills and sent letters to the editor to newspapers around the country and said, send us your earliest baseball stories. And uh, so those stories poured in, and it was clear that the point, you know, the request included how did the game start, not just what's your earliest baseball memory. And um, so uh, they got a um, a lot of stuff. In fact, there was a stunning day when I was working at the Baseball Hall of Fame I don't remember the exact date, but I was there from 95 to uh, 2014. And um, 
there was a stunning day when uh, we received a phone call that somebody said, oh, I've got some old baseball scrapbooks. I was wondering if you'd be interested. And that's a call that comes in probably every day. But um, following procedure, we uh, it wasn't me. It was my uh, colleague, Jim Gates. But we asked a few questions about the scrapbooks to ascertain what was in them. And before too long, it became clear that they were the official scrapbooks of the Mills Commission wow. in which all the correspondence was pasted and so forth. And so as you read through that material, um, you find many, many different uh, stories about the roots and the beginnings of baseball. And as you said in the question, uh, you find that there were lots of different versions of it that over time coalesced into uh, the New York game and the Massachusetts game. And standardization was needed as baseball went along in order to make the competitions be about the same thing. So if my club from Manhattan and your club from Gettysburg or wherever mm -hmm. was going to play, they would have to agree on a set of rules before they played. And over time, it became expedient to just agree on those rules for the whole season, et cetera. But at any rate, the way these historians, and I'm doing the old fake quotation marks with my fingers, but the way these historians judged what came in appeared to be, obviously, that a key factor would be how early does this story reference? You know, uh, if somebody said baseball was invented in 1860 and somebody else said it was invented in 1839, um, that 39 is going to weigh a little heavier than the 60. Um, so they got a letter from a guy named Abner Graves in Denver, who was a mining engineer and a former, grew up in Cooperstown. And uh, his letter, as I'm sure your listeners know, said that Abner Doubleday had invented the game at Cooperstown in the summer of 1839. Now, this is humor, what I'm going to say next, but I think there might be a little truth to it. I like to think that they said 1839, now that's a long time ago, and Cooperstown, let me get out a map and figure out exactly where Cooperstown is. And they, they saw where Cooperstown is, and, you know, it's hard to get to today. Um, and in uh, 1905 or so, when they got this letter, in fact, I think that was the year, it was virtually impossible to get to Cooperstown from any population center. Um, and uh, I like to think that they thought to themselves, well, even if we happen to know that baseball has some origins on the other side of the Atlantic, it's going to have it's going to be hard for anyone to check this story out. So we'll go ahead and we'll <laughs> say it was Cooperstown, New right. York in 1839. Um, and uh even before the Hall of Fame opened, for those of you guys, it opened in, um, the grand opening was in June of 1939. It had actually opened the year earlier. But in uh, 1938, a librarian at the uh, New York Public Library published a scholarly article completely debunking the, uh, the Doubleday myth um, and pointing out all the problems, or some of the problems with it. And, um, you know, the, the myth, as you said in your intro, is important as a myth. It's important to people to have an origin story and for it to be celebratory. And, um, you know, a lot of money and time was being spent to create a baseball centennial celebration in Cooperstown in 1939. And so, um, and, and scholars, you know, scholars often suffer the fate that they might be right, but the media and the public aren't paying any attention. So this poor librarian who, if I remember right, was named Joseph Henderson, um, had his article ignored. And then it took several generations for the Hall of Fame. I would say it was really 1985, 1990 before, oh, wow. before the Hall officially recognized and put anything in print. 
that baseball was not invented there. And even even during my time, 2014 and earlier, you would often have to explain to people uh, this myth. I do want to digress real quickly and say that one of the artifacts that they have is the double-day baseball, which was found in a trunk in Fly Creek, New York, about three miles from Cooperstown, right about the time that the centennial was was getting rolling. And it was it was held up as a a relic, of course, and almost a holy grail of the invention of the game. There's really no evidence that it belonged to Abner Doubleday. It just was found in a place where they thought he might have been. And I was really proud of the Hall of Fame when they did a traveling exhibit called um, Baseball as America. And they were trying to show the connections between baseball and culture. And this, this museum exhibit went to all the major museums in the country. And they put the Doubleday Ball on tour and on display. And the curator, a guy named Tom Schieber, who wrote the label for that, came up with one of the best sentences of all time in the baseball world anyway. And that sentence is, Doubleday didn't invent baseball. Baseball invented Doubleday. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just to, uh, a few facts about Doubleday, which probably just helped this myth tremendously live on. Civil War hero. Uh, he grew up in Cooperstown. Um he fought at Gettysburg. He was well regarded as a as a general, uh, and so I could just picture how this, the, whoever you know, the group of people coming up with the the Mills report, mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, this is perfect." You know, mm-hmm. we have an American hero here who invented this mm-hmm. very American game. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let, let's let's shift for a second. Um, you have a book in front of you uh, uh, called Bloomer Girls. It's uh, written by Deborah uh, Shattuck. Um, the first women's baseball team, or what might be the first women's baseball team, uh, was a team that was created by Garrett Smith's daughter, Elizabeth Smith Miller. Mm -hmm. And they played a game in Peterborough, New York, and listeners of this podcast uh, would recognize that that town. That's where Garrett Smith lived. Uh, the the very wealthy abolitionist. Uh, Can you talk to a little, uh, talk to us a little bit about that game? Absolutely. So, and I'm fascinated by this. I, quick side story is that um, the Hall of Fame library, uh, like many museum libraries, and this might be a useful point to the researchers that listen, is always in itself in the process of getting better. So when the Hall of Fame's library was founded, um, a photo might be accepted to the collection, but there might not be any information collected about it. Um, uh, when I was at the Hall of Fame, I did not always succeed, but I made most of my staff and myself, every time you made a photocopy, you put the date and the source that this article was coming from. But the people prior to my generation didn't necessarily do that. So we had a photo of a newspaper woodcut of a baseball game uh, involving um, two teams of women. uh, And the, the caption of the photo had been included when a photographer took a picture of the newspaper. And it said, Baseball at Peterborough, New York, dash, the last illustration of women's rights, story, page 275. But the name of the newspaper and the date of the newspaper were not on that photo. So I had a copy of it framed because I thought it was a pretty compelling photo. And I hung it in a pretty public spot in the library. And then when we would do our uh, twice-a-day tours of the library, I would always point it out, and I would use it as an example of how um, the library is always professionalizing and trying to get better. 
And eventually there was a young uh, woman on the tour, uh, probably someone in her 30s, and uh, she was very intrigued by it and took a photo and, you know, went and did some research. And she lived in New York City. And um, she eventually, by just laboriously going through uh, the many, many 19th century newspapers in the um, New York Public Library collection, was able to somewhat, you know, through luck as well, luck and determination, she found the story that accompanied um, the uh, illustration. So the two ideas were merged for the first time. Now, Deb Shattuck, that you talked about, who's written this book, uh, Bloomer Girls, Women Baseball Pioneers, not only greatly expanded the research, but talks about many other women's uh, teams and female players in the 19th century as well. But um, so the story is that um, Garrett Smith's granddaughter, uh, sometimes called Ninny and sometimes called Nanny uh, Miller, um, invented uh, this team in 1868, and they first played on July 25th of 1868 at Peterborough. And um, there were two teams, both uh, local young women. Um, one was called the Senior Nine and one was the Junior Nine. And uh, they played a number of practice games with no one watching because it was not very common for women to engage in any physical exercise outdoors at all in this time period, but the Smith and Miller families were reformers in every way, mm -hmm. as you uh, you guys know. In fact, quick side trip, they were very interested in a concept called dress reform, and yes. uh, I was rereading a little bit of this book today to kind of prepare for the podcast, and, you know, some of these women involved said that the voluminous, uh, heavy, uh, long dresses and skirts and corsets and all that kind of stuff Really, to them, uh, I can't remember the word they used, but the, the concept was like being imprisoned, you know. And um, so um, I think it's accurate. You can correct me if you don't have it right, but didn't Garrett Smith Miller's daughter or wife invent the bloomer? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yes, so his daughter, I believe. His daughter. Yep. So the bloomers um, were uh, adopted by these teams. They wore a tunic, which uh, we would kind of call a short shirt dress today and then they had the bloomer pants underneath it and the illustrations are really cool like uh maybe you can get a picture and put it on the yeah website of course something. yeah but um anyway so they played a couple practice games and then they played baseball um out on the uh public square in peterborough some some sort of public ground um and in fact the the location has been found uh because in the woodcut there's a windmill in the background and um the uh, local Peterborough Historical Society was able to know how many windmills there were in that area in, the eight, in 1868 and was able to find the exact field where the woodcut was, uh, was conceived. Anyway, because of the placement of this one windmill. But um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton visited uh, Peterborough, and she was cousin of uh, Garrett Smith Miller, right? And so she visited in the summer of 1868 and she wrote three letters uh, to the newspaper, which I believe was called The Revolution. And um, in the second of those three letters, she goes into some detail about these young women uh, playing uh, the game. In fact, if you'll, um, if you'll indulge me for just sure. a second, I'll find, uh, find her colorful quote about that. Um, uh, this is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, uh, writing about this game. So she says, um, uh, quote, 
We were delighted to find here a baseball club of girls. Nanny Miller, a granddaughter of Garrett Smith, is the captain and handles the club with a grace and strength worthy of notice. It was a very pretty sight to see the girls with their white dresses and blue ribbons flying in full possession of the public square last Saturday afternoon while the boys were quiet spectators at the scene, <laughs> unquote. So um, the the Smith-Miller families, they were... Uh, they were turning society on its head. They I guess. were, yeah, and, and, so. and again, not just because you had women playing baseball, mm-hmm. which, like you said, was a something that didn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Again, the clothes that they were wearing, they mm-hmm. gained a lot of attention for it. Not yeah. good attention, but they ga- <laughs> they gained a lot of attention yep. um, for for the bloomer mm-hmm. uh, wearing the bloomer. Um, so, if we could talk a little bit about some local connections sure. with baseball, mm-hmm. and we have plenty. Sure. Um, Troy comes to mind. Absolutely. Uh, actually, even before we get to that, um, you were quoted recently in an article in the Times Union uh, that the first Grand Slam ever hit in, in baseball history was hit in Rensselaer, New York, which we're not far from. Uh, I lived in Rensselaer for many years and walked Riverside Park with no clue. Um, a few things that comes to mind. Um the way the game was played, sort of your quote that you you um, had in that article, of course, a grand slam hit in, what was the year, 79? Uh, 81. 81. 18, okay, 1881. Um, home runs, let alone grand slams, were not something that were, <laughs> that, yep. that were prominent in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the game was played, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Troy. Sure, and um, I, I'm not going to get any uh, financial benefit from plugging a book, but there's a great book that came out last year by David Rapp, and it's called Tinker, Evers, and Chance, mm-hmm. or Tinker to Evers to Chance, something like that. And um, Rapp is... Um, Rap Rap is kind of uh, certainly an interesting guy. He was the editor of Congressional Quarterly for many years, and um, he came to that book through being a Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, and Evers, these guys, of course, played for the Cubs. Evers then played for the Braves as well. Mm-hmm. But um, so Evers grew up in Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, that book is wonderful, and I'll I'll refer to it again in a second because of. It, it addresses the concept of baseball strategy that you brought up. So it wasn't until Babe Ruth came along and, uh, you know, I guess he, I think he played his first major league game in 1915, and um, he was a pitcher primarily, but he was a great hitter as well, and he, he turned into a full-time outfielder and, and hitter. Um, and he really knew how to hit the new lively baseball. So right around 1911, the baseball had changed a little bit. It had a cork center for the first time. And Ruth learned that you could get that thing up and uh, drive it a long way. Right. Prior to that, it was called the dead ball era. And uh, a home run was considered by both players and fans to be boring. Um, <laughs> the ball, first of all, you'd have the same ball being used most of the game because anytime it was fouled off, it would just be returned. And it would get softer and softer as the game went along and thus deader and deader. And so what was the ball made of? It's um, well, there, there's a whole there's a whole podcast really okay. on the history okay. of balls. Yep. But early baseballs, they would take a couple of rocks or some other hard object, and then just wrap lots and lots of cloth or okay. string around it, and then tie a leather cover over okay. that. Yep. And um, you could imagine hitting that thing all afternoon; that it would just get sharpier and yep. softer and so forth. Also, since you're using the same ball all the time, it might have started white, but it turned brown and yep. green pretty mm-hmm. quickly too. And um, 
So what the hitters used to be expert at would be placing the ball. They could hit to all fields in a way like uh, for today's fans, you could picture the swing of an Ichiro Suzuki. Sure. Um, and uh, so they could hit in any direction that they wanted based on the situation. And they were trying to, what fans found exciting was not necessarily the scoring of runs, although that was the ultimate goal, but it was how many different variations of infield defensive play and base running could occur. So a game by nature became more exciting with three men on base or two men on base or one man on base than what a home run does, of course, is it empties the bases and it creates right in its wake what those fans of that day would call a non-situation. You know, there's nothing going on. The bases are empty and there's either zero, one, or two outs. So that's what they tried to avoid. Um, and nobody could hit the ball that far anyway. But then when the Cushion Cork Center came along in 1911, all of a sudden they saw some balls go a long way. Now, there were still guys like Roger Connor who hit this Grand Slam in Rensselaer mm-hmm. in 1881 who were very, very strong and, uh, you know, could occasionally get a ball, drive a ball a, a long, long way. So um, I believe it was it was not only the first Grand Slam in Major League history. Now, Major League Baseball was... Um, I guess five years old. It was founded in 76, um, and this was 81. It was September of 81. Not only was it the first Major League Grand Slam, but it was the first Major League, um, there's a term for it that some baseball people use. Ultimate Grand Slam, which I wasn't familiar with, but I saw that today. But it basically means bases loaded, two outs, and and you're down by three runs. So what it is really is the moment that every kid fantasizes about. In the backyard, yeah. backyard, Mm -hmm. right? So... um, and uh, so Connor, who uh, hit 132, I believe, home runs in his career, which was quite pretty a, good back then, quite yeah. a lot. In fact, he was the all-time home run leader until uh, Babe Ruth came along. Um, you know, 30 years later, started hitting his home runs. Um, so uh, Connor, his record was probably broken in about 23, something like that. <laughs> but anyway, Connor hit a grand slam, and the uh, the Troy uh, were they the Trojans or yes. The, Okay. Uh, they had also been the haymakers, but the yep. Troy uh, Trojans um, were on their way home victorious. And, uh, you know, um, it, it is a fantastic way to end a game. I'm sure they thought it was exciting because the other thing to, to say about home runs, and particularly this space in Rensselaer, is most any home run that was hit was not hit over a fence because there weren't, there weren't fences. Playing with fences. <laughs> <laughs> so it was probably just hit and... and a long way, and Connor, I don't know how fast he was, but to make it all the way around those bases before the ball gets back in when uh, there's nine guys trying to keep you from doing that must have been an exciting play. (coughs) Right. But um, in general, they would be even more thrilled with a bases loaded bunt that uh, that scored a run and then and then the bases were loaded again so they got even more excitement you know um, how times have changed yes you know? there's I mean, no doubt I think last year was the um, 2018 was the uh, uh, all-time record for most for home, home runs, runs hit yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, I think also if I can remember the stat correctly um, uh, more strikeouts than any other outcome, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. uh, of an at-bat, which is kind of crazy. But, um, you know, as the babe himself said, you know, 
if you want to hit home runs, you can't be afraid of striking out because right. they do right. go hand in hand. Yeah, well, and, so. and the game has changed, and, and, and players are even taught that the, this, the uppercut swing these days to, mm-hmm. to, to sort of you maximize your, you know, we, mm-hmm. the value is to hit a home run, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll take a home run over a walk. Yep. Um, so uh, back to the local connections, um, uh, Johnny Evers, mm-hmm. born in Troy. Yep. Uh, and as, as we just said, there was a team in Troy, at first the Troy Haymakers and then the Troy Trojans. Mm-hmm. Um, Evers goes on to play for uh, the Cubs and wins a few World Series. Very interesting character. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Johnny Evers? Sure. Um, well, first of all, Johnny Evers uh, probably uh, probably was about the size of Jose Altuve. I don't know if people know him. but Sure. He's, very small. Yeah. Five, five, six. Five, six. Yep. And also played in Troy, which is kind of a neat yep. connection. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, if, if the listeners are all from the Capital Region, uh, last year they had an awning out in left field there at the Valley Cats that said... Uh, um, something like 425 feet or 75 Altuves from uh, <laughs> from home plate. But anyway, uh, so Evers was very, very small. He was not just short, but also slight. He was not a uh, bodybuilder, beefy type guy. He was an Irishman from Troy, and uh, his parents were immigrants. And uh, his father had done well in Troy's, um, both as a businessman and in terms of being on uh, politically well-connected with, I think they call it the ward system, and um, uh, he was a school board member and so forth. So, uh, But the, the Evers family loved baseball, as did almost every Irish person in Troy at the time. And this is why I mentioned David Rapp's book on Tinker, Evers, and Chance, because it paints just an incredibly good picture of what Troy was like in those times, not just for baseball, but also for politics and Irish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then it does the same thing for Frank Chance, who I think was from Kansas, if I remember right, and Tinker, I believe, was from someplace in Pennsylvania. And they were all different ethnicities and different parts of the United States. But it, uh, fans of the Civil War era would like it because those those kind of folkways are the different streams leading into America. And then I'm not a Civil War buff uh, per se. I enjoy some history. But one could argue that the movement of all these people into military units and then moving around the uh, what is now the eastern half of the eastern and southern half of the country um, during the war arguably did more to mix cultures than anything that had happened uh, before that um, and may have played a role in spreading baseball. But mm-hmm. anyway, Rapp's book uh, captures all that stuff very well. Evers, when we were talking about the scientific side, like they they used to have a phrase called the scientific approach or the scientific game. And Evers has this great quote um, where he's talking about, uh, we can get into this at length if you want, but the most famous play in baseball history, the uh, so-called Merkel's Boner game on September 23rd of 1908. But he says, we used to stay up all night reading the rule book and dreaming up situations and trying to find a new way to outsmart the other team. And if you remember, you know, this is the time with, without a lot of home runs, you know, and without a lot of fences necessarily. And um, so they were looking for things, and I'll, I'll just go into this if that's mm-hmm, okay. Sure. So they were looking for ways to beat the other team. So one of the things that Evers noticed um, was that uh, – it was a baseball custom, but it was nowhere in the rule book that if a safe hit was made while the winning run was in scoring position, presumably on third base, 
As soon as that runner from third base crossed home plate and the home team or the team batting last won, everybody would just walk off the field. And Evers knew that ball to be still in play. So let's say there was a single to left field and guy scored from third base and the left fielder just ran off the field because he could see that the guy had scored. So Evers came up with a plan, and he tried it in Pittsburgh in, I want to say, either late August or early September, uh, where a guy named Harry Pulliam was umpiring. And um, uh, what Evers did is he called for the ball in such a situation and stepped on second base, his position, thus forcing out the runner from first base who had to go forward because the batter had had to try to take first. And the umpire didn't buy it in Pittsburgh. But Evers and the umpire spoke at length uh, on the field at that moment. He talked to many yeah, umpires yeah, in his career. Exactly. Yep. And so Evers tried the play again on September 23rd, 1908 at the Polo Grounds in New York City. And again, it was the ninth inning, and uh, there were runners on first and third for the home team, the New York Giants, who uh, incidentally are the former Troy Trojans. They had left Troy and moved down to New York and become the New York Giants. Then they later moved to San Francisco, and that's where they still play. Right. But um, And they even have a football team named after them, the, uh, the New York Giants. But anyway, so uh, a guy gets a single into right field, and um, there's pandemonium because there are, uh, the Cubs and the Giants are separated by one game in the standings. The Giants are a game ahead of the Cubs. Um, Giants in first place, Cubs in second. And here the Giants take this game, which I believe was the final game of a series. So the Cubs would be leaving town um, two games out instead of one game out, or if they had won, tied for first place. So, um, And then the other factor is that in the polo grounds, the clubhouse doors were in center field. So A, thousands and thousands of fans were pouring onto the field delirious because the Giants had won. B, All the players, except for a couple, uh, were running towards center field doors to get away from all these fans. Evers thinks this is a good time to call his, what some would call a trick play, but it was perfectly legal. So he calls for the ball, and a ball is thrown to Johnny Evers, and he steps on second base, and this time Harry Pulliam calls the runner out, which is the third out, and as almost all baseball fans know, you can't score a run on the third out of sure. the inning, right? So, which is in the rule book. So, um, the runners called out, but you got ten thousand fans on the field. The Giants are arguing with the umpires. The Cubs are laughing and celebrating. Nobody is clear whether the ball in question was the ball <laughs> that was hit or whether it was just another baseball. A Giants player had heaved a baseball into the stands. We think that might have been the accurate or appropriate one, but anyway. Um, the uh, game cannot resume because, A, there's no lights in 1908, and it's dark, uh, nearly dark. And so the league officials rule that um, the game, I believe they ruled that the game was a tie, and they would replay it if um, necessary. Actually, they gave the game to the Cubs, and they said, we will uh, have another game at the end of the season if the Cubs and the Giants end up tied. And they did end up being tied, and uh, the Cubs won the one-game playoff, the first in baseball wow. history in 1908. Now, this is the Capital Region Baseball Roundtable, so a lot of your listeners will know that the Evers family had a sporting goods store mm-hmm. in um, in Albany, and I believe also in Troy before that. And um, 
in the, uh, I want to say the 1980s or late 1970s, the ball in question was found in a back room uh, at the Evers Sporting Goods Store on Central Avenue and uh, was eventually sold uh, at auction. I believe Keith Olbermann bought it either, mm. either at that auction or from whoever bought it that day. I don't know if that particular ball has ended up in the Hall of Fame yet, but that's often the trajectory is that it'll be sold and some collector will buy it and then eventually somebody will have what I as a former Hall of Fame employee would call qualms of conscience and say, <laughs> this ball really belongs more to our culture than to me. Um, maybe I should put it at the Hall of Fame or, or even at a place like the Albany Institute of History and Art where A, it can be cared for and sure. B, people can see it. You know? Is that something that you would have been involved in in your former role, trying to get a piece, uh, you know, an artifact like that to the Hall of Fame? It, it would have been. I, that was before my time at the Hall, but I have a quick story for sure. you. Sure. Uh, I'll make it quick. But in 1888, uh, time that would be interesting to your people, um, the uh, Cubs and an all-star team traveled the entire globe during the offseason and uh, went to um, – the Philippines and I believe Australia and uh, what was called Ceylon at the time, Sri Lanka now, and India and Egypt and Greece and Italy and then eventually to uh, Paris and London and um, Dublin, one city in Ireland, I can't remember. I think they played in Edinburgh too. Anyway, they played baseball in all these locations and the goal was for Albert Spaulding, who was the captain of the Cubs and the founder of a sporting goods company, mm -hmm to popularize baseball across the globe. Um, and it was, there was a ton of fanfare. Um, now, it was a very successful trip from the American point of view in terms of um, everybody had a great time and the, the gospel of baseball was spread. However, in most of these countries, they didn't drop everything and, and become baseball players. But um, I got a call one day when I was working at the Hall of Fame uh, from a guy who had a diary from 1888 and he said these these people are playing baseball and they're going all around the world he's got this handwritten diary and uh, I said oh my god <laughs> so that is that is just an incredible I mean I again I'm not a Civil War expert but I would imagine if a new diary from a general who was at Appomattox came you know um, that that the the you know Civil War world and the history world would be uh you know, dying to get a hold sure, of that thing. Sure, sure. And uh, so uh, this diary, which I ended up convincing the owner to donate to the Baseball Hall of Fame, turns out to have been um, kept by the Cubs center fielder, uh, Jimmy Ryan, I wow. believe. And, uh, you know, one way we figured that out is he was the only player on either team not to have a story told about him in the diary. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then there were other clues. But uh, uh, So I'm sure that's something you're proud to bring to the Hall of Fame because yeah. now you can put the pieces together yeah. of this, this you know, world trip. That and, uh, In fact, a couple of men have written books about that world tour and the most recent book, which I think was also written by a guy named Spaulding. Eh, I might be getting confused, but... The most recent book relied heavily on the diary. I to, could imagine. To, you know, and the colorful language and just what people were eating. And, you know, I remember they went into Honolulu. Uh, they left from San Francisco and, and went into Honolulu, which was not, you know, part of the United States uh, officially at the time. And um, they docked and went ashore and found out who had won the presidential election. So details like that, you're at sea in 1888. 
you don't know. You're not going to know <laughs> until you get off the boat. Yeah. Yep. So um, cool stuff. That is great. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, your great-grandfather played baseball, Major League Baseball, one mm-hmm. season. Yep. Uh, for it was the Cleveland Naps at the time, yeah, 1906. 1906. I believe he batted 194. I looked up uh, baseball reference is great because uh, oh, I love that uh, site. Uh, so he batted, uh, yep, 194. Yep, a uh, handful of RBIs. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. not not terrible. I mean, he played a year in the in the mm-hmm. bigs. Um, he was also a veteran of the Spanish American War, as you said. Yeah, he um, he was born in 1880. So um, in 98 is the right year for the war, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, he served in the Spanish-American War in the Philippines um, and then came home and became a minor league baseball player and then a major league baseball player. Ben Caffin, is that it? Ben Caffin, yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he uh, uh, played about 14 or 15 years in the minors but just peaked there in 1906 with Cleveland uh, due to an injury. His contract was purchased and he was brought up. And uh, the sad thing is he was hitting 353 in the minors, in the high-level minors, um, but uh, just couldn't, for whatever reason, hit the major league pitching. Uh, so then he played another seven or eight years in the, uh, in the minors after that. And um, as his uh, playing career was winding down, uh, World War I uh, was starting up. So uh, born in 80, so in uh, 1917 he would be uh, 37. Which is a little old, mm-hmm. um, but his job as a World War One soldier was stateside, and it was basically training infantry members. Okay. So, um, and there are three or four major league baseball players who have served in two wars. Most notably, um, Ted Williams, who uh, uh, fought in both uh, World War Two and Korea uh, as a fighter pilot in Korea, especially. Um, and a guy named Hank Gowdy, um, who was in, I believe, World War One and World War Two, if I remember right. Um, but those guys are both higher profile guys than Ben Caffin. And so one of my little missions is whenever I see the only two or the only three major league players to fight in two wars, and arguably my ancestor may not have fought in Oklahoma or wherever he was training infantry, uh, but he certainly served in two wars. Um, so that's kind of cool. Oh, it's worthy. It's worthy to mention. Yeah. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, hundred games in 1906, not too bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, I'm I'm not sure he played a hundred games. Uh, he oh, hundred at bats maybe or oh, let's say at bats, 103 at bats. So okay. I, yeah, I apologize. Okay. Yep, that's okay. Baseball he re- about reference. Twenty or thirty games though. Okay, so. Um, a cup his, of coffee in the yeah, in the bigs. Cup of coffee, uh, or uh, for this Irishman as he was, <laughs> perhaps a cup of whiskey. Right. Uh, but he um, his claim to fame was he played eight games against the Tigers, four in Detroit and four in Cleveland. And in one of the games in Detroit, um, my great grandfather was a left fielder, uh, achieved the rare distinction of throwing Ty Cobb out at home plate. Oh. So. And That's a, enough. Another fun thing is he, he he was hit in the head by Cy Young. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why he couldn't hit. But anyway, so uh, well, let's talk about baseball's relationship with war. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, your great grandfather fought in the Spanish American War and and was a soldier during World War One. Um, I think what immediately comes to my mind, and I think most people's mind, is World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of a league of their own and, and uh, the Women's League. Um, I have a letter here. Uh, maybe you've handled this actual letter, Franklin Roosevelt. I uh, have indeed uh, had that uh, actual uh, letter. It's, um, it's not encased in plastic, but it's inserted in a plastic 
sleeve, and I've I don't think I've touched the actual letter, but I've I've held it in my hand. <laughs> uh, it's it's a letter that uh, uh, that President Roosevelt wrote uh, in January of 1942 to the commissioner at the time and longtime commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, mm-hmm. saying that uh, don't don't stop playing baseball, mm-hmm. um, even if the games sort of. Uh, the quality drops because men are fighting. We need, we basically we need this game. Yeah, we need this game as a, um, a safety valve, uh, an outlet for people's people need to be entertained and they need to sort of have something lighter because war is not very light, as your listeners know. And um, so it's a fascinating letter. It's called in baseball the green light letter because the president is writing to uh, the commissioner to say, "I'm giving you the green light. Keep playing baseball." America was involved in World War I, of course, relatively briefly. Mm-hmm. And when historians look back at baseball's connections to World War I, they don't find a whole lot to celebrate. And part of that was um, that um, a lot of uh, baseball players seem to have taken jobs in the shipbuilding industry um, and played on um, shipbuilding industry teams. Um, and it, you know, it almost almost kind of has the flavor. I haven't looked into it too much of sort of trying to avoid that, um, you know, really uh, horrible uh, trench warfare in in um, in World War One. Now, Ty Cobb and Henry Ma- uh, Christie Mathewson yeah. uh, both did fight over there, and Mathewson ultimately probably paid the price with his life. I believe he was gassed. Yeah, in um, a training exercise. In a training in France, exercise, yeah. yep. And, and Branch uh, Rickey was also, uh, was I don't he, think he was injured, but he okay. was there, yeah. He was mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. there are some standout players, but um, Ruth, for example, had a shipbuilding job. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say anything bad about Babe Ruth. I think he's a great American hero and did a lot uh, for the country, probably in both uh, of those wars. But at any rate, um, the green light letter is fun and interesting for a couple of reasons. And one of them is um, the president. It's written in, what, January of 42? Yep, January 15th. Okay. And the president uh, has some kind of uh, ideas that would prove to be, uh, from what I know about World War II, um, not the best ideas. Uh, So uh, he says, incidentally, I hope that night games can be extended because it gives an opportunity to the day shift to see a game occasionally. And, of course, at least on the East Coast, you had a lot of blackouts. So, um, you know, uh, night games, which had only started in 1935 and uh, weren't really perfected by 1942, but they were happening quite a bit. Um, But it probably wouldn't have been uh, long. I'm sure by opening day in 1942, the War Department had figured out that it maybe wouldn't be a good idea to illuminate the inner cities Uh, of uh, all the East Coast uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. towns. So at any rate, it's it's interesting because, of course, um, it's, what, six weeks after uh, Pearl Harbor, Harbor. Uh, yeah. December 7th, 41 to January 15th of 42. So the war is, uh, as a concept, is still taking shape. But that's just to me a historic, I'm not trying to say anything bad about FDR, but if he had the ability to edit the uh, letter a few months later, he sure. might have taken that out. Sure. <laughs> and I didn't give it much thought uh, uh, before the podcast, but of course I remember uh, I was a kid uh, in eighth grade when September 11th happened, mm, and mm-hmm. that uh, not that put baseball on hold too uh, for for about a week, I think. Absolutely, and uh, you know our listeners in this part of the country, some of them must be Mets fans, and. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it was Piazza who hit the first uh, home run. Against against um, the Braves. Against the Braves. And uh, a moment 
pretty famous moment. In fact, I, I remember they made a baseball card just of that moment mm-hmm. uh, the next season. But baseball, you know, um, and, and, you know, I, a little bit of a personal opinion for me here. Like, obviously, we were all touched by September 11th. And one of my colleagues at the Hall of Fame said to me uh, later that year when the um, Yankees ended up in the World Series against the Diamondbacks, oh, you know, the Yankees really have to win this one for the for the people of New York. New York City needs this. And 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 my thinking, I love baseball, uh, but my thinking was, you know, I'm sorry, colleague, but I think you're wrong. I think, you know, what, 2,500 or 3,000 people had died in New York City, and, and um, uh, you know, the Yankees win a World Series about, you know, once a month, it seems mm-hmm. like. And, you know, it just didn't seem to me that winning their 28th or 27th or whatever that would have been um, uh, would uh, would necessarily do a lot for them. I think the Piazza moment um, was a moment that you couldn't predict. And, uh, you know, I don't know what Mike Piazza was thinking, but I'm sure he was very happy to, to, to be the person who created that moment. Like, to me, that single moment would be, would always be more important than if the Yankees had ended sure, up winning sure. that World Series. And I think what was important, you know, important uh, or, or what was great about that World Series was it went seven games. So yeah. we had seven games to watch and mm-hmm. uh, ultimately ended with uh, <laughs> a bloop over Jeter's yeah. head by yeah. uh, Luis Gonzalez. It was a tremendous series uh, if, you know, I mean, for the Yankee fans listening, they probably – have a harder time understanding what, but as a non-Yankee and non-Diamondbacks fan, I was just mesmerized. And mm-hmm. my mesmerizing in that particular case had little to do with September 11th, uh, 2001, and more to do with just a great series, you know. Right. But anyway, um, so I hope I haven't offended anyone, but I just didn't think winning well, another World Series. Not a Yankees series. fan here, Tim, so <laughs> okay. don't worry about me. Well, there may be some <laughs> no, listening no who doubt. don't like they're me. All, they're all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. So uh, let's talk uh, real quick, uh, Tim, before we talk a little bit more about the library, mm-hmm. about uh, you written a lot of things. Um, one of the things I was able to get my hands on here, though, was uh, a book that you co-wrote called Baseball's Greatest Hit, The Story of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, what I didn't know, what a lot of people don't know, that there's more to Take Me Out to the Ball Game than what we all sing during the seventh inning stretch. Absolutely. Uh, That's the refrain. Th- yeah. It's the refrain. Mm-hmm. There is a verse. It's actually mm-hmm. a very interesting verse. It's about a girl who yeah. wants a... Mm-hmm. doesn't want her... Bo, to bring her to the show, but mm-hmm. take me out to the ball it's game. It's an imperative command. I'll tell you what you can do. Yes. Take me out to the ball game. Um, and so I have a colleague who um, we I, I co-wrote this book with two other guys. And um, shortly after I wrote the book, in fact, I, or we wrote the book, I like to think that we inspired this guy. I have a colleague named George Boziwick, who is retired uh, librarian from the um, – New York City Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. And George is an expert, among other things, on uh, early 20th century popular song. And he really saw, um, because he knew the history of, um, uh, you know, with it being a popular culture library down there, performing arts, he knew a lot more about actors and actresses and fashions and theater and stuff than we would have known going into it as... um, we had two baseball guys and a music guy on this book. But George really noted that, um, you know, women get the vote in the United States in 1920, and the 
song is written in 1908, and there are a lot of popular culture pieces happening in the first um, 15 years or so of the 20th century where women are being allowed out into different parts of society than they had been before. And, um, you know, you have this big popularity of, for example, Ladies' Day at the ballpark, and the concept of Ladies' Day has been a little bit different at different times in baseball history, but the goal was either to get a lady to come and buy a ticket, usually a cheaper ticket, with a man who would also come, or for groups of young ladies to come who were single. And, you know, um, I mean, it's hard for today's men or women to imagine, but if you were a woman of solid moral character, you wouldn't be in a ballpark ever. Um, you know, like, and baseball was a little rougher than <laughs> going to a Yankee game or a Mets game today. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, there's a lot of alcohol involved, a lot of cursing and betting and uh, fights in the stands and things like that. So um, not only were women trying to get uh, access to, you know, being out in public unescorted, um, but really baseball in some senses, A, they wanted the revenue that these people would bring, and B, they wanted kind of to get a little more wholesome and clean up the atmosphere at the ballpark. Kind Which of was thing. always you know. a struggle baseball had early on. Yeah. Yep. Betting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cheating. Yep. yep. So uh, it's a fascinating time, and there's there's so much stuff. Actually, when um, when I uh, – the the book was – started really by Bob Thompson. And Bob is a music executive and a musician. And he was a friend of mine from some other projects. And uh, he called me up in 06, uh, 2006. And he said, uh, you know, Take Me Out to the Ball Game is going to have its 100th anniversary in 2008. And I said, yep, I know. And uh, he said, well, you want to write a book about it with me? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, no, thanks. And uh, here's this, you know, New York music executive, and I'm a librarian saying no, and he's a little stunned. And uh, he said, well, why not? And I said, well, you know, Bob, it's a 30-second song. And, you know, what could there possibly be to say at book length about this song? And he said, Tim, you have no idea, but I've been doing some research. There is going to be so much. There are movies called Take Me Out to the Ball Game. There's one of my it favorites. Is, yeah, there's Frank all Sinatra, kinds of Gene Kelly. yeah, there's all kinds of incredible history. The women's suffrage movement, the the strategy of the game at the time. It's just before not only women getting the vote, but home runs becoming popular. So this this big change in 1920 in American culture. He says, uh, "Trust me, you'll have fun. We'll have a great book." I said, "Okay, well, we got to get my friend Andy Strasberg involved because he has the world's biggest collection of take me out to the ball game stuff." which is the stuff that illustrates this book. So um, I said, if, if I'm going to be involved, Andy's got to be involved. So there'll be three co-authors. But I, I still, I've got other projects that I'm working on, Bob. So really, you know, I'll just introduce you to Andy, and you guys can take it away. And he said, Tim, I really want you to write this book with me, and I have a contract and an advance. And I said, <laughs> Bob, I'm, I'm in. there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's a really so, attractive book. I mean, you know, you. all the pictures mm-hmm. and um, and it, not just. I mean, obviously, you guys did did the, the did the work, but you, <laughs> there's a forward by Carly Simon of all people, and another uh, one by Bud Selig. By Bud yeah. Selig, it's kind of crazy. Now, Carly Simon, I got to tell that story real quick. Sure. Carly Simon is the daughter of uh, I don't remember her father's first name, but last name was Simon, of Simon and Schuster fame, the publisher. Okay, yep. And they grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. 
And um, the uh, Jackie Robinson family was searching for a home, a place to buy or build a home in Hartford, Connecticut. That's where they wanted to live. And they were facing, um, you know, kind of white prejudice for they couldn't buy certain homes. So they decided they would build one. And um, Mr. Simon was apparently a Dodgers fan and a New York publishing executive. And he said to the Robinsons, he said, why don't you live with us while you build your home? So this little known chapter of American culture, I mean, one of the world's biggest publishers, one of the world's uh, most accomplished singers, his daughter, Carly Simon. And she used to go to Dodgers games with Jackie Robinson and Jackie's three kids. They'd ride in the back of Jackie's car. They all had their little Dodger uniforms, and they'd get to sit on the bench in Ebbets Field during the game. So just bizarre little, and stuff like that comes up as you write a book like that. It, it just blew us away to uh, to learn that the Things part. that you didn't even know. The reason mm-hmm. why you... You didn't want to write this book, and then you found all these great stories. And I am thrilled with the book and, and thrilled that I had the opportunity. I'll mention for our listeners, there's a copy here in the Gilderland Public Library. Okay. And um, I don't know how many other libraries in the area have copies, but I'm sure a few do. Um, I was able to find it very easily online, too. Yeah, you can buy them yeah. online um, probably fairly cheaply. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm, again, making no money on this because the book's been out of print. Whenever you do a book, and this is a, a nice thing for history people, whenever you do a book that has a centennial involved with it, its sales just bottom out um, after that centennial year is over. Um, but we like to think that we were— So you're not getting the big checks yeah, in the mail anymore. no big no. checks. <laughs> but uh, you, you can't even buy a new one. But um, we like to—what th- what was guiding us in part as a principle was, you know— Maybe somebody will write a book about this song on its 200th anniversary, but we want to write everything you ever wanted, needed, or didn't know you wanted or needed to know about Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And um, so we have some fun in there. We don't have time to go into this, but the two guys who wrote it were great self-promoters. Um, so they both promulgated a narrative that they had never been to a Major League Baseball game before writing the song, and one of them was right. The other one, who was the guy really pushing that story, Jack Norworth, um, we found substantial evidence that he'd been to a number of baseball <laughs> games prior to writing the song. Right, right. But, uh, and, and the funny thing about myths, like you were talking about earlier, we found that, we debunked that for about a year while re- reviews of our book were coming out. We'd get a little respectful nod toward this, this discovery that we'd made. And now anytime Take Me Out to the Ball Game is described in the media, did you know that these two guys had never been to a game? People need that myth. They need yeah, oh, to yeah, say yeah, baseball yeah, sure. was invented in Cooperstown. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, what one of the former presidents of the Hall of Fame has said, a guy named Dale Petrosky, who was a, a great president for the Hall for a while um, before leaving. Um, Dale said, you know, baseball was not invented in Cooperstown. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Cooperstown has become the heart and the spiritual home of baseball. It wasn't invented there, but it belongs there. And, you know, like it, the myth became more important than the obscure realities of where the game right. might have sure. come from. Sure. So, so um, let's talk about the library. Let's talk about uh, a particular event, event, and then you could tell us a little bit about some of the services you have here. Again, this is a beautiful building. Um, It's uh, on Western Avenue. Um, For me, my reference point is the SUNY Albany campus, because that's that's where I went to school, about seven miles west of uh, SUNY Albany. 
Um, there was an event uh, that took place here about a year ago uh, that involved Make-A-Wish mm. and a Civil War uh, reenactors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, um, absolutely. So uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation called us one day, and they said, um, we have a young fellow who um, studies at your library every Saturday morning. He's, he's been sick. Um, and uh, so he gets some tutoring at your library in order to kind of stay up with his uh, schoolwork. Um, and uh, he has applied to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and his wish is to go to Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. He's a Civil War um, buff. And um, we would like to surprise him at your library on a coming Saturday morning um, by making his wish come true. And uh, at the time, I had a gentleman working here named uh, Mark Curry Alley in a public relations capacity. And Mark himself is a veteran and uh, uh, also a father, which is a, a good thing to be when you're uh, thinking about kids and making their wishes come true and so forth. And um, so uh, I, uh, I worked on the event, but I kind of put Mark in charge of it. So the um, 125th New York Volunteer Infantry uh, came in. Uh, the young man was in uh, one of the study rooms in the library uh, being tutored. And here come these, I want to say, 40 um, uniformed uh, Union soldiers from the 125th. And there's a nice little garden out behind the library. This was in May, I believe, of last year. And um, this garden's kind of a hidden gem. Uh, anybody who doesn't know about it, it's a great place to study or uh uh, eat your lunch or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, so the soldiers lined up out there and a lot of the ladies came in their Civil War finery as well and um, so forth. And then when his tutoring session was over, um, he was escorted out into the back garden and was thrilled to find all these soldiers. I don't know that he n- made a connection right away with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but um, then what happened is that the leadership of the 125th gave him a uniform and uh I think he put on the uh, the coat and the hat, um, maybe even the pants. I can't remember. Uh, it was a very touching uh, uh, day. One of the in a long career, including that career we talked about at the Hall of Fame. One of the best things I ever had the opportunity to be associated with. He was, I don't know, is the term mustered. He was added okay, into. Okay, yeah, the, sure. They gave him his his orders, and his orders were to send him to Gettysburg. To Gettysburg. Um, so uh, and. Uh, he uh, was a pretty thrilled young man. I think he was about 12 years old. And uh, so uh, anyway, just a great, great yeah. day. And, you know, it restores your faith in humanity when you see that many sure. people from a group like the 125th who will give up a Saturday morning uh, for one kid uh, to make his wish come true. Um, you know, certainly if uh, I'm, I bet people are listening to this podcast that were involved that day. Oh, no, there's and, no uh, doubt. We thank you very know much. A few of them. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We thank you. Are very we overlooking much. that garden court, we are. courtyard area? We so, are. So one thing that if you it's never... also where the bear came last year. If you've oh, that's if you've right. seen our video online, the bear was out here about this time last. Oh year. wow! But anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, one thing that I didn't realize again, I had n- never been here. I'm almost ashamed to admit it. Um, you could study out here, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. you know, it's not quite nice enough yet. It's it's late March. We're mm-hmm. a few days away from opening day. Um, but hopefully, even in a couple days or a week or so, this people will be out here studying, and mm-hmm. it's a really beautiful uh, library. Um, Thank you. What are now? Uh, libraries are a lot different from even when I was a kid, not that mm-hmm. long ago. 
Um, it's not just books. Mm-hmm. You get there's a lot of services here. Do you sure. want to talk a little bit about? I mean, in a previous interview, I I think I even heard you say you guys loan out fishing rods of we all do. things. We do. In fact, we've done that for uh, actually about 30 years. Um, the uh, Helderberg Bassmasters uh, Club is a club that got us started with that a long time ago, and um, uh, so we we do loan out fishing rods and reels. We have what we call a library of things, and many uh, modern public libraries have this. Um, but we loan out things like Wi-Fi hotspots, so if you're going on a trip, you can uh, take the hotspot with you to get internet uh, connectivity in a campground. Or we have one guy who's a local, uh, coaches a travel softball team, and uh, finds that it's useful to have the Wi-Fi in the dugout, so he'll check that out sometimes when they go to a tournament. Um, surprisingly, one of the most popular items to check out of our library is a six-foot folding table. Uh, so in garage sale season and graduation party season and Thanksgiving. <laughs> pong and, season. Yep. Um, there's just all kinds of uh, people checking out our 40 or 50 uh, folding tables. And the basic concept, whether you're talking about books or folding tables or Wi-Fi hotspots or museum passes or Chromebooks or whatever it happens to be, is... <coughs> There are things you want to use, but you don't necessarily want to buy, own, sure. and store. And so if the community can uh, use them by taking turns, um, that's a great concept. So, um, But then there's also, like, a lot of people go, oh, you know, every book in the world is now online. Um, well, first of all, that's not true. Secondly, um, quite a few of them that are online, you'll have to pay $12 yeah. or $8. But there's a lot of uh, free ebooks uh, that the uh, Gilderland Public Library is part of the Upper Hudson Library System, which is all public libraries in Albany and Rensselaer County. And we share a, a gigantic database of ebooks. At my house right now, my uh, subscription to The New Yorker, which I think is perhaps the best magazine in America, one of the best mm-hmm. anyway, is coming to a close again, and they want me to pay $120 a year to renew The New Yorker. And, um, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I got a deal last time, and if I get a deal this time, I'll, I'll, um, I'll bite. But the thing is, the library has a, system, a service called Flipster where you can just hit our, um, our website on your iPad or on your phone or on your home computer. And um, there's about 75 magazines, including The New Yorker, that you can just page through on Flipster. Mm-hmm. And it, the experience is almost identical to to reading the physical magazine um and it may not be quite as satisfying as reading the physical magazine to those purists among us those in addition to civil war buffs we have people who like like to read on paper right i'm one of them yeah but it may not be quite as satisfying but keeping my 120 dollars is pretty satisfying too (laughs) right yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's how i will make that uh decision when the time comes the big thing though um nick is that Libraries today are really used more as gathering places yeah. for um, library programs where we will do, um, you know, bring in speakers or show movies on lots of different subjects, uh, kids' events, uh, magic shows, things like that, or community groups meeting in our two uh, meeting rooms. This library is very lucky because our larger of our two meeting rooms is um, uh, sort of accidentally acoustically perfect. So we have mm-hmm. a lot of concerts in there and we have um, fundraisers who, uh, many years ago, a group called the Gilderland Library Foundation, who bought us a baby Steinway Grand. So um, we have, in addition to an 
acoustically perfect room that holds about 140 max. We have a great piano in that room. So oh, wow. um, we had actually, uh, your, your audience will love this. Last September, we had uh, Jack, Jacqueline Schwab play the piano here. She is the pianist for most of Ken Burns' uh, TV specials, including the Civil War um, and including baseball. And so she, uh, one reason he chose her is that she has an instantly recognizable piano style that is also unique, like there's really no one like her. And uh, as Ken Burns uh, put it, um, I have never heard any piano player play with more feeling than Jacqueline Schwab. And we were able to have her here. Um, she plays relatively often up in Lake George. Uh, she's into these contra dance type things. And uh, we just kind of snagged her on the way to Lake George one day. And, uh, and uh, we had some Civil War buffs here that day. Wow. So, um, we also, a shout out, if I may throw it in there, to Matt George, who's been on your <laughs> podcast. Matt yes. is a uh, frequent visitor to the library. And um, we try to do a, a, a number of baseball events. And as I think you probably talked about with George, He's uh, been a coach and an umpire and a player for many years, and uh, so he's a familiar face around here too. Yeah, he well, he's the one who told me you want to talk baseball, you talk to Tim. Oh, cool! Uh, Thank so, you, Matt. So, um, well, Tim, we'll we'll end uh, maybe uh, like this. First off, um, you're a Cubs fan. Oh yeah, yep. uh, I see the the Joe Madden Manager of the Year <laughs> 2015 pennant hanging up. Yep. Um, uh, I assume you still watch a lot of baseball. I watch a lot of baseball. I uh, have the MLB TV app. On the greatest my, uh, things that's ever been invented. For $119 Unreal. a year. See, the same price as the New Yorker, you can watch every, every major league game. Home or away feed. Home or away feed. The, uh, the problem, though, for those listening is it's really not a great deal in your market. Like, it's perfect if you're a Cub fan living in Illinois. Or a Phillies fan. Yeah, or a Phillies like fan. Like me. But if you're a Yankees or a Mets yes. fan, they try to drive you to uh, SNY or right. YES. Right. And um, so don't buy it if you're a Yankee or a Mets fan because you're doing okay with cable anyway. But for the rest of us, um, it's just an awesome, awesome thing. I do. Uh, I coach uh, 11-year-old travel and rec baseball and um, have a son who's 11 who plays and I just uh, I try to do as much baseball stuff as I can get away with here, mm -hmm. while um, <laughs> focusing mostly on running the public library. Right, right. So, so uh, <laughs> we'll end like this, Tim, because uh, you know this is something that I talk about a lot with um, my closest friends, who are probably sick of it. Uh, but and we we talked earlier about how the game has changed, and mm -hmm. uh, the home run was frowned upon, and then Babe Ruth came along, and. Now the you know the game revolves around the home run in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and um, revolves around analytics now and mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know uh, number crunchers as much as you know managers making gut decisions is I think was a lot of the way the game was uh, managed back in the day. Uh, do you have any commentary on that? I mean, uh, you see the league trying to uh, deal with pace of play mm -hmm. and um, rules around instant replay and sliding. Uh, the game the game continues to change. The game does change, and there's a perception that it never changes. But, of right. course, <coughs> it's changed an awful lot. In fact, there's a quick Casey at the Bat story where that poem was written in 1888. And, and you've, you perform it quite often. I, I do. Um, written in 1888, and uh, in 1887, uh, Major League Baseball had a one-year experiment with uh, 
four balls for a strikeout, and if I remember correctly, nine balls for a walk. But I know it was four for a strikeout. And so a baseball historian from whom I learned a lot, a guy named Tom Heights, who was a librarian at the hall before I was, um, said to me once, think about it. If they had stuck with that four strikes and you're out rule, then there would be another verse to Casey at the bat. (laughs) Or if they had stuck with it just for, if Casey at the bat had been written six months earlier, and they had stayed in the in the four strikes rule for the rest of baseball history, people would say that Casey at the bat is a, such a period piece. Do you, you know, they used to have only three strikes back then. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing that, in terms of strategy, just to f- throw in there is that um, the big flaw in Casey at the bat is that uh, with runners on uh, first and third and um, uh, two outs and this mighty Casey at the plate, uh, this guy that uh, presumably can win the game with one swing of the bat, um, even though it wasn't that popular a thing in 1888, um, the thing might might have been to walk Casey and face whoever was going to hit next. Um, and as far as I can tell, the answer to that is that the intentional walk probably was not um, uh, a widely used strategy in 1888 just because... Um, it was sort of the height of the muscular Christianity movement, and the manly thing would be to, to face your opponent mm. head on rather than to, um, uh, you know, take a pass on him and uh, and try to get try to beat a lesser hitter to win the game. Anyway, it's fascinating baseball strategy stuff. In terms of all the um, analytics and home runs and speeding up the game, I don't want the game sped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't Amen. mind if it was ten or fifteen Amen. minutes longer, um, but. And, and all, the, all the changes that are proposed for on the field, I'm kind of okay with the, all, the, all the tinkering and monkeying. But the way to really speed it up would be to have like one minute less of commercials mm-hmm. each, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> each inning break. Um, Greg Maddox is one of my favorite players. And uh, uh, there was a time shortly after he left the Cubs and went to the Braves where he beat the Cubs in Atlanta and then beat the Cubs in Chicago within about an eight-day stretch. And um, I think in both games he used less than 100 pitches, fewer, I should say, fewer than 100 pitches, and um, took about an hour and 25 minutes to do it. And that was a sort of out of time for the 90s, right? But you go back to the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, there are whole baseball games being played in like an hour and 50 minutes, hour and 40 minutes. And uh, part of it is because they didn't have to have like four and a half minutes of commercials in between. Yeah, right, sure. Well, the other thing is that you Starting know, pitchers were going for deeper into games. You you know, the idea was if you started, you'd finish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, a relief pitcher was a person who wasn't good enough to be a starting pitcher um, who just came in in the event of some sort of emergency, you know. Mm-hmm. But the game changes over time and uh, still to me is recognizable. But I, I think, you know, I'm 54 years old and I've been a baseball fan since I was about five and I think my own line in the sand is uh, over the designated hitter. If <laughs> if they're going to put that into the National League, I, at the very least, I'm going to be a lot less likely to buy a shirt or to buy a ticket um, or to buy MLB TV. Um, it's all about money. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's a great game. You know, there's that great saying about baseball by the French uh, – sociologist Jacques Barzin who said whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball 
and that's where the you, the quote ends, wherever it's quoted. But in the original writing where he said it, it goes on and he says, whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball, the rules and realities of the game, and would do it best by watching some high school or small town teams. And even though high school teams probably use the designated hitter too, I might just have to go that route if the National League adopts the designated hitter because, you know, the tickets are 200 bucks, and, you know, mm-hmm. the beer is 1250 mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, and if they're not even going to let the pitchers hit, I'm not quite sure I can follow. Yeah, you know? uh, well, you know, I have to agree with that sentiment, Tim. Uh, I, I just, it's a, it's a game about decisions as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that uh, the game is superior when you have to account for that pitcher. Uh, you know, in your lineup and, and force a manager to make decisions. Um, but uh, that's, that's my, my meager opinion of it. The thing I'll add to that is that people talk about how rare it is for a pitcher to get a hit, and it is not particularly rare. I would argue that it probably happens almost every day in the majors. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is at-bats are not just about hits. Um, there are strategic ways to use an at-bat that um, uh, can further a game. So there was a great at-bat in the 20, 2008 playoffs, and you're a Phillies fan, right? Yes, I am. So you maybe can help me remember this pitcher's name, but he was up, and the Phillies were down by three or four runs, and this guy had like a 15-pitch at-bat and ended up getting on first base and starting a rally. And I don't know that the Phillies won that game, but I think they did. And um, it was a turning point, this this pointless two-out at bat right. where this overweight yep. pitcher mm-hmm. just kept extending the inning. Well, let's not forget, every pitch you make that other guy throw yep. counts, yes. and he's on a pitch limit, right? And um, so that's a strategic way to use an at bat. Girardi, who was a good hitting catcher, hit two sixty-seven for his career. But Girardi, in a game where there were two outs and he was batting with the bases empty, and his pitcher was doing well, Girardi would go up and swing at the first pitch and ground it out so that he could get his pitcher back on the mound. Mm -hmm. And people who only think that getting a base hit or even a walk is offense, I mean, baseball, first of all, is not just offense, right? I mean, you you have to have defense to win a game Mm -hmm. Um, because you could have an awful lot of offense, but if you had no defense, um, you know, you'll... This may not all make it into the podcast, but I do have to tell you. Please keep going. My favorite question that I was ever asked at the Baseball Hall of Fame by a member of the public. I was working alone at the library reference desk, and this old, old man, probably about 85, came in. And there was about 20 feet between the door of the room and where the reference desk was. And he was not moving very fast, but he was moving very purposefully toward the reference desk. And I was a rookie, as it were. And uh, he came up to the desk and he said, young man, do you know what the first sentence of the baseball rule book is? And I said, no, sir, I don't, but I have one right here. Open it up to rule 1.01, and it says, I read to the guy, baseball is a game played between two teams of nine players each. I finished the sentence. I looked at him like, what could you possibly mean in asking me this question? And this old man almost screamed and said, then what the hell do they play in the American League? <laughs> and turned around and walked out. So I think that's as good a place as any to end because, uh, you know, my 
again, I I preach to my friends on this all the time, and they say, oh, you know, let's see a hitter in that in that spot. And I say, well, first off, I mean, you mentioned Greg Maddox. Talk about a pitcher who took pride in in in, in swinging a bat. Sure. Um, so, absolutely. you know what I'd love to see on Maddox, and if and when I retire, I'll do this study if no one has done it since. In how many of his wins, his 355 wins, did he somehow help create a run? And in then of that subset, and, and it's a lot, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. you were watching, right? In that subset, how many of those games were one-run victories for Atlanta or Chicago or the other teams yeah. he played for? I know? mean, the, the the pride he took, uh, we all remember the ESPN commercial, uh, yeah. a chick stick the long ball, yep. Yep. but I mean, you needed a bunt. Yeah, Greg Maddox is going to put that bun right right where it needed absolutely. to go. Absolutely, yep, absolutely. It, it it was fun to watch the uh, A's and the uh, Mariners the other day in uh, yes. in Tokyo mm-hmm. um, because the A's uh, uh, in the first game scored a run, I believe, or no, they just advanced a couple of runners with one very good bunt, and the Japanese fans get it because that's still part of the game. Sure, uh, there yeah. and it's still part of the game here, but. Um, it's. Uh, I don't think it'll ever disappear. I think what it really is is one of these pendulums. Yes. You know, yes. That as soon as it becomes all home runs, then there'll be a team like. It'll a, be advantageous for a yeah. team to play some small ball and the great, uh, the great uh, Baltimore Orioles teams, the great Cardinals teams of the '80s, uh, which I say with reluctant uh, admiration as a Cubs fan. But they, um, I remember watching a game in 1985 and. Uh, um, the Cardinals put a runner on first base, and he stole second base. And then on the next pitch, the next batter uh, hit the ball behind the runner and into right field for a single. And the, the whole game was like three or four pitches old, and mm-hmm. the Cardinals were already up one to nothing. And Bob Costas was broadcasting, and he said, that is scintillating baseball. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, a, a home run can be a beautiful thing. But, sure. you know, 4,000 home runs in a single season yeah. or yeah. whatever it mm-hmm. was. Well, seven hundred. You, you mentioned know. the two thousand eight Phillies and and the things that they did well. Joe of course, Blanton. Joe Blanton. Yeah. Yes, yes. But who wasn't known for as a, as a great hitter, mm-hmm. but he yep. just in that he moment, do that moment he extended yeah. the at bat. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a team. I mean, obviously he had Ryan Howard and Utley and Rollins. All these guys could hit home runs, mm-hmm. but the base running that the, I mean, great mm-hmm. base runners on that team and a great defensive team. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that. Um, I think are a little undervalued in, in today's game. Absolutely. Um, but uh, with that, Tim, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we could go for hours uh, for the sake. <laughs> well, you know, maybe someday we'll do a part yeah. two. Yes. But it, it'll, we'll have to have a baseball it. podcast because did we mention the Civil War? <laughs> well, that's, I'll, uh, I'll have to explain uh, to the board. Uh, okay. But uh, with it being opening day, I thought it was a great opportunity. We, mm-hmm. we did mention a couple Civil War things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, for anybody who's in the Capital Region or just visiting, please come to the Gilderland Public Library. It is a great uh, a library and not more than a library, a community center. And uh, it's all free. It's all free. <laughs> and uh, as Tim said, there are plenty of events to come to. So well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much, Tim. Take care. I would like to give a special thanks to Tim Wiles and the Gilderland Public Library. I'd also like to thank my brother, William Tony for not only composing and performing the version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game you're listening to right now, 
but for writing and performing the main theme of this podcast. Thank you.